Hello and welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell and today we discover the secret to business growth and why most businesses don't take growth seriously. Certainly a conversation worth eavesdropping on. Today's show is made possible by our friends at eView Real Estate. Our very special guest today is a leading world expert on the subject and he is an internationally experienced senior executive, of course, who has worked across a range of sectors including FMCG, retail media and fin services. He's held commercial roles with Barclays Retail Bank, Boots in the UK, Watson's The Chemist across Asia, where he reversed declining sales, uh, three years of declining sales there. The development of global growth strategy for Burger King International, including a launch into Brazil, China, and turnaround plans for problem markets, including the UK, Sweden, and Korea. So certainly a, a big global career. He is currently founding partner of Bloom Group Consulting, a strategic consultancy, and has just shared his valuable experience in his brand new book, The Growth Director's Secret. We are very lucky to have exclusive access from London. Andy Brent, welcome to Taking Care of Business. Jackie, thanks a lot. Great to uh, great to be with you. Well, I'm looking forward to picking your brains and making mm-hmm. this conversation very interesting, eavesdropping for, for our listeners, which I know it will be. Now, I must ask you about business growth. It's always such a fascinating area in business, and really the point of people being in business is for it to grow. But what led you to write a book about it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you say the point of being in business is to grow, and I would agree with that, but really the thing that got me and and others, my collaborators interested in this subject, was that as we travelled around the world and worked for lots of big businesses, we were increasingly sort of struck by how poorly many businesses manage the subject of growth and and not only how difficult many companies find it to grow profitably, but also how it seemed to be handled inside businesses much less well than it should be and much less well than a lot of other areas uh, of the business. Yes, it's interesting. You talk in your book about the growth paradox, that while growth is super important, most companies are really bad at it. Is that really true, and what, and what evidence do you have for that? Incredibly, it is. It, it really is surprising, because there's lots of data that says, you know, if, uh, if you could bless a company with anything, you give them the gift of growth. But... but Despite that, most companies are, are, are fail to grow sustainably and, and, and profitably over any period of time. Some some of the smartest brains in the world have looked at this, people like McKinsey and Bain and company and lots of academics, and generally what they'll find is that only about 10%, just 1 in 10 businesses, ever manage to grow profitably over any period of time. There's a one particular survey, I, I always quote, Bain and company did it in 2012-2013, and they surveyed companies all over the world, and they concluded, and I quote, just nine out of ten management teams fail to grow their companies profitably. So nine out of ten fail, just one in ten grow their companies profitably. That, I think that's quite a shocking stat. I think shocking is an understatement. It's, it's unbelievable, really. And, and you say in your book um, it is a surprising claim that you make most companies don't take growth seriously. But with those numbers, you think they would be taking growth seriously. But why aren't they taking growth so seriously? Well, it, it, is, it really is strange. It's, it's often as if growth is regarded as it's the thing that happens when you do all the other things well in the company. Yeah. One of the, 
little funny stats that we use sometimes to illustrate this is to ask executive teams and CEOs, who's in charge of growth in your business? And often there'll be a sort of awkward pause and, and the answer isn't clear. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll often challenge companies, who's your growth director? And it's very, very rare that you actually get a company that can say, yeah, we've actually got a growth director. And yet they've got a director of, of everything else. They've got a finance director, a marketing director, a legal director, an HR director. Growth is an incredibly important area, hasn't got one senior executive accountable for it. You know, nobody is going to get fired if they don't, if they don't grow. And that, to us, says, you know, maybe companies aren't taking this area as, as seriously as, as they should. So in the past, or in, I shouldn't say in the past, but currently, normally growth sometimes sits in the marketing department or business development. Sometimes. Sometimes it does, yeah. And... and you know, we, we we do ask this question a lot of executive teams, and we say, well, who here is in charge of growth? And often there'll be a pause, and the, and the team will sort of look at each other and go, uh, we all are. But that kind of means nobody is. Okay, Sometimes yeah. the marketing guy will say, well, it's me. But then often the sales guy says, well, hold on, it's me as well. And then maybe the, the product guy says, well, I've, I'm involved in that as well. And usually what, what you find is because there's no... There's no formal um, accountability. There's not one person who is designated the growth director. It falls between the cracks. And that usually means, when you dig into it, companies haven't got really well through growth strategies. They haven't got growth metrics that really work. They often haven't got resources adequately uh, um, allocated to it. And consequence being, they often don't grow. It's a really good point. So to reveal a secret, you talk about the growth mistake that most that you say most companies make. What is that? Yeah, you know, the, it's almost a consequence of this lack of accountability. We, we think that because companies typically don't have somebody in charge of growth, that kind of means nobody's looking with real forensic uh, analysis of what it would take to grow. And we found that almost all of the big companies that we've been associated with, some of the biggest companies in the world, the P&Gs and the Cokes and the Unilevers, all make uh, a common, really important uh, mistake about the way that we consumers go about uh, shopping and choosing between brands. And the mistake is this. The, the working assumption that most companies make is that whatever category you're in, on any given day, all the purchases out there are kind of up for grabs. And the way to grow is if you can put together a commercial plan that grabs as many of those purchases as you, as you can, more than your competitors, then you'll grow. And in response to that, you find most companies develop really complex, busy, expensive commercial plans with loads of promotions and lots of advertising and lots of new initiatives and you know, lots of loyalty programs. And all of that is based on, on a fallacious assumption that those purchases are available. The truth is, most of those purchases are not available to other brands. And the reason for that is because what we all do most of the time is shop from a small group, a small portfolio of favorite brands that we've chosen subconsciously, we're very bonded to them emotionally, and we're very reluctant to switch from them. And we actually actively resist attempts by other brands to make a switch. And so... All those efforts that companies put out there to try to grab purchases, in most of the time, 
um, consumers are just not responsive to them because they're shopping on autopilot from this group of uh, this small group of favourites. Why is it you think that consumers are reluctant to switch? Are there too many choices? What What are some of the reasons yeah, why? It, it's really interesting, Jackie. It's, so it comes down to the way that our, bra- our brains have learned to uh, enable us to, to manage the complexity of our lives. So this habit of having a small group of favourites, autopilot choices, that we default to without thinking, is, is very common. I'll give you one example in, the, in your everyday life. I'll ask you a, turn the tables and ask you a, a question here. Yeah. Um, tell me this. How many television channels have you got access to on your television? Oh, yeah, too, I, I actually know the answer to this, I think. Um, I've probably got access to 300. 300. And how many do you watch? How many account for, say, 75% of your viewing? Oh, six. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's autopilot behaviour. Yeah, so that, right. Your brain has decided you haven't got time to search all of those different channels, even though probably at any point in time there would be something on one of those 300 channels that you'd like even more than whatever you're watching. And so without thinking about it, every time you sit down in front of the television, you'll default to your autopilot choices. You mm-hmm. probably don't know when you made those choices or why, but your brain has made them for you. And that's the same behavior that we use when shopping. Once we've made these autopilot choices, every time we walk into a supermarket or we walk down a high street, rather than try to evaluate all of those complex choices, we subconsciously default to our favorite. We screen out all the activity from other competitors. So the autopilot brands are the ones that get all the growth. So how do new products enter the market? It's really challenging because there is a, a, a really scary statistic about how many new products fail to launch, isn't there? There is. I mean, the, the stats are that something like 80% of new new products fail. And this is part of the reason. I mean, that once a brand has, has achieved autopilot status, it's very hard for challenger brands to take that away from it. The mistake they usually make is they'll take the, the brand on its own terms. You know, they'll try to say, we wash 5% whiter or we last 10% longer. And it's very hard to persuade a subconscious brain rationally that there is a better option in the market. It'll usually stick to the choice that it's, that it's made. You need, if you're launching new brands, is to try to find a positioning in the market which is different, which is differentiated from the, from the market leaders and gives you an opportunity to establish your own territory and appeal to a different set of consumer, of consumer needs. And again, too few companies really understand that, which is why so many expensively produced new new products fail. I'm glad you mentioned that uh, in my other work as, as a brand expert. It's one of the most frustrating discussions I have with companies that don't get it, how important it is that brand positioning and finding the gap in the market and then claiming that piece of mental real estate and how critical that is for business growth, particularly for new brands and particularly for new products. And in your book, I was really fascinated with the section that you discuss about magic moments. You called them moments of maximum emotional impact. Or momize, I think you, uh, was, was the yeah, acro- right. yeah, was the acronym when brand choice decisions are made. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so this is this really is the key to positioning your brand so that it becomes an autopilot choice. So when we're choosing brands, and remember, most of these choices are done subconsciously by a subconscious brain. What we'll do is 
is our, our brains will know all the different usage occasions for any, any category of product. And it will understand the one or two occasions where the performance of the product is really disproportionately emotionally important to us. And it chooses, without us realizing it usually, it chooses, as it's autopilot, a brand that will best meet the needs of that emotionally important moment. Let me give you, let me give you one example of that to, to illustrate. There's a brand of deodorant, which I think you'll probably know in Australia, called Lynx or Axe. Is that, do, you, do you know that brand? No, I, I don't, know. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a brand for young men, so you may, oh, that's, may have that's probably that. why. Let me, let me <laughs> that, use it as an example. This is a brand yeah. which is targeted at, at men aged 14 to about 18 or 20, and it's a deodorant brand. Oh, actually, Lynx. And yes, I do. I do know Lynx. Do yes, know I, Lynx? yes, I do now. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, I do. Um, but yes, it is particularly positioned to to young men. Yes, please continue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's a Unilever brand. It's sold it. all over the world. And yeah. They've, they've understood that for that group, the only time that, that, that young boys are interested at all in whether their deodorant's working really is just one moment, and it's when they're in the proximity of attractive girls. All the other times, you know, all the other occasions when they're using deodorant, they're not really emotionally engaged at all. They don't really care if it's working when they're out with their friends, but they really care if it's working when they're in the, in the proximity of a girl. And so Lynx has understood that, and they've developed a product and a proposition and marketing programs that don't try to compete with other brands on, on being drier or lasting for longer or triple lock protection. They just say, we know what's important to, to you guys. We know you want to attract girls. And so, therefore, we're going to, put, we're going to give you a product that will enable you to do that. And that, that positioning, understanding that moment, that momi, and building a proposition to own that momi has enabled links to attain market leadership all over the world. In a, in a market that was previously all about long-lastingness and dryness and totally other things. So that's the power of these moments. If you understand them, whatever category you're in, and it's hard to understand them, you build a proposition to win at those moments, you will become the autopilot choice, and then you'll grow. That's a really nice way to lead into a quick break. We need to go on autopilot and um, play some commercials and things. But, Andy, I know that uh, we've got you for a little bit longer. So on the other side of this break, I'd like to reveal the growth director's secret uh, with you. We are chatting with Andy Brent live from London. You're listening to World Class Business Radio on Taking Care of Business exclusively on Ardor PFM. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. We hope you're enjoying eavesdropping on our 24-carat gold. Interesting conversation as we unravel the secrets to business growth with our special guest, world leader on business growth, Andy Brent, who has shared his secrets in his new book, The Growth Director's Secret. So, Andy, please put us out of our misery. What is The Growth Director's Secret? Well, there are probably a few things in the book which sort of could, could be regarded as a secret, but... The, the key secret, and, and I, I should be serious about it, because it's quite a, it's quite a serious and, and, and concerning thing, really, is, is this. It's that the conventional research tools that we've all been using, all of the industry has been using for the last 30 or 40 years, focus groups, panel surveys, uh, company shops, all of those tools that we've been using to tell us what our consumers think and what their motivations are, uh, don't work. They, they don't work as regards revealing consumer motivation. The reason for that is because, uh, as I explained earlier, uh, brand choice decisions are taken subconsciously by our subconscious brain. Um, 
and conventional research tools um, don't talk to our subconscious brain. They talk to our conscious brain. Mm. And our subconscious brain takes something like 95% of all the decisions we ever make, and our conscious brain takes about 5%. So is it any wonder that if we've all been using portfolios of research tools that talk to the 5%, We've been getting an awful lot of things wrong, and that helps to explain fairly scary stats like the one we mentioned earlier, 80% of new product launches uh, fail. Mm. So the secret is that conventional tools don't work. The good news is that emerging from the world of neuroscience are new types of research tools that can reveal some of the motivations behind purchase. But the business world hasn't kind of discovered them yet. The academic world has that these are not being commonly used in the business world. And I think it's a huge myth. Why don't you think business is embracing these? Is is, is it called implicit techniques? Is that the term that's used? Yeah, implicit implicit techniques. It's a sort of shorthand for uh, research tools that can um, connect with our subconscious decision-making processes, where it all goes goes on. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting, but it's almost like our autopilot for business has been to use these tried and trusted mm. methods forever. And, you know, it's almost as if the business subconscious can't shift itself from the choices that it's, that it, that it's been making. It, you know, if you talk to people in, in, the, in, in the academic world, um, they, this is not news to them. They've known this for, you know, close to 15 years. But business still, still hasn't got there. And although... Many big businesses are beginning to play around with implicit tools for very executional things like comparing packaging designs or advertising ideas. Very few companies are using implicit tools for strategic purposes, for understanding which consumers to target, how to target them, the emotional insights that they need. And uh, as, as a result, many businesses still misunderstand their consumer motivations and don't position their brands in a way that delivers growth. What, what are some of the tools that businesses can use to tap into the subconscious or these implicit neuro techniques? What are some of the ways that you can do that? Well, I mean, there's a whole range. I mean, it goes from the sort of lab-based things where you can sit in, in labs with, with uh, electrodes on your, on your brain, but, but that's very uncommon. But uh, the, the, most tools actually work by um, using... Uh, time time constraints. So if I ask you a series of questions and I put you under time pressure to mm. answer those questions, your conscious brain won't be able to process all those questions quickly enough. And so without realizing it, you will default to your subconscious brain. You'll give me answers that come mainly from your subconscious brain. And so most of the implicit research techniques use uh, speed of response to determine the degree to which responses are coming from the subconscious rather than the conscious. Something you might be familiar with, you've probably done, many of your, your listeners will have done personality profiling yeah. tests, Myers-Briggs type tests, where you ask lots of questions and you, you put under time pressure for the same reason. You give a lot of answers and then when the results come back, you're always surprised at how accurate a picture it paints of your personality. And that's because those tools are using these implicit techniques to tap the subconscious, and so we're getting actually a much more truthful response than we would ever give if we had time to think about it and evaluate it and give our conscious, our conscious brain response. So 
Yeah, in um, more traditional... That's that time constraint to do it. In the more traditional market research techniques, there's been prompted and unprompted responses. So an unprompted response is something that just quickly comes out of someone's mouth without asking a specific question. How is that unprompted response different from from this from those implicit techniques, or is it is it similar? Yeah, uh, it, it could be. It could be that that, that 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 does come from the from the from the subconscious. The the the, uh, the most sensitive um, the, uh, tools now, co- companies that have been doing this for some time, have got amazing tools available that can differentiate down to something like, you know, an eighth of a second difference in response time. Mm. Tell them whether a response is coming completely from the subconscious or, or not. There are some really remarkable things out there. Just, just one stat to, to, to illustrate the greater accuracy of these, of these tools. Um, one of the challenges that the market research industry faces is having a tool that predicts purchase behavior in the market. And if you ask people, you know, you give them a concept and you ask them, will you buy that? The accuracy of, you know, what people say they'll do and what they actually do is something like 30% using conventional tools. So gets it right about one in three times. With implicit tools, they're now delivering um, response rates that are something like 86% accurate. So not far off three times more accurate. Now, imagine if you're launching a new product you're using conventional tools and it's giving you a one in three chance of getting it right, or you've got the choice of using these new implicit tools that are giving you an 86% chance of getting it right, you know, it, is it no wonder that, that um, uh, we've been making a lot of mistakes in the past? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, if I was uh, a marketing director of, of a company and I was listening to this interview and went, oh, this is an amazing prediction. I want to be a part of this. I want to start using implicit techniques to test some of our um, strategy. Do they uh, go go to a specialised organisation to do that? Or what? what's my next step? Well, yes. I mean, there are... Uh, there are Various companies working with these with these tools. I would strongly recommend that they find companies that are specialising in these in these techniques. There are many companies that are talking about uh, using implicit te- techniques. Uh, not all of them are uh, as proficient as others. So I would take a little bit of time to go online and really look at some of the great companies that are that are around. There are not many of them, but there are some great companies around that are doing fantastic work in these in these areas. Um, if you find companies that have got these tools and are using them in the right way, it really is game-changing. It, it just it, it opens up you know, new, new layers of consumer insight. In a simple way to think about uh, this is that conventional research is very good at telling you what consumers do, but it's very poor at telling you why they do it. Mm. Uh, neuroscience-based implicit techniques will tell you why consumers do things, and that... You know, that is the gold standard, and, and, and that's what we've all been struggling with for a long time. Uh, and it's such an opportunity for businesses and, and the marketing uh, leg of businesses particularly to move consumer insights to a new level. Well, time conscious. We are t- conscious of time. We just need to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll find out how to market to open minds with Andy Brent. You're listening smarter, not harder, on taking care of business only on RWPFM.
Welcome back. We are getting brainier from the best in the business world on taking care of business exclusively on Ardell PFM with our very special guest, world growth expert, Andy Brent. Do you like that as a title, Andy, world growth I expert? That's very good, Jackie, absolutely. <laughs> I think I'm going on my business card. <laughs> what, what, what actually do you call yourself? So, when, you know, if you're at a barbecue or a party and someone asks you what you do, what do you say? I'm a, a strategic growth consultant. Is what I. It's a very, it's a very dull title, isn't it? I should have used yours yes. much better. But yeah, strategic <laughs> growth consultant. I help companies to grow. And and do people then ask you what does that mean, or do they just say, "Excuse me, I need to go and get a drink." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some of them, some of them do the do the latter definitely. But if I can, if I sort of pin them in the corner and don't let them escape, then uh, they sometimes get quite <laughs> interested because there is some interesting stuff in there. But uh, you're right; it can be. You can occasionally get a bit of a glazed look in their in their eyes if you're not careful. Yeah, like they sort of go to autopilot, but it is the it is the most fascinating area of business, I think, and I think it's it's wonderful that you've actually uh, shared your valuable insights and knowledge in in your new book. But um, as we led into the uh, the break, we we're talking about marketing to open minds. Can you just tell us a bit about what that concept is? Yeah, so this is a really important concept, an important part of, of the book actually, where an awful lot of current marketing funds and, and monies are wasted. And they're wasted because, I mean, I say they're effectively marketing to closed minds. They're talking to many consumers who uh, are most unlikely to buy them. Their, their messages reach consumers at times when those consumers are not ready to engage. And often, because messages fail to connect emotionally with consumers, they'll be rejected. So that's marketing to closed minds, and that that kind of is is bedeviled an awful lot of the of, of current marketing activity. Marketing to open minds is where the marketing industry needs to go, and really there are three key elements to it. The first is to get away from the old sort of paradigm of targeting consumers by simple social demographics. You know, where we're going to sell our products to. Uh, men aged between these these age age ranges with this with this income as sort of human animals you can't pigeonhole us like like that depending upon our circumstances depending upon the context our needs will change and so rather than targeting your marketing messages at socio demographic groups you need to understand the mindset the consumer mindset that you're you're targeting and that that's the first that's the first element very important yeah secondly if you're going to be successful at marketing to open minds, you need to understand how to connect emotionally with your consumers before you try to sell them rationally. We're all we're all hardwired to to, to reject people trying to sell us stuff, but we will open uh, our minds if we feel the person who's talking to us has got a connection with us. Um, great example of that would probably be you must have seen the uh, the Dove campaign for Real Beauty a few years ago. Yes. Which had huge success by moving away from the old sort of, you know, portraying women as, as impossibly beautiful supermodels and just saying everybody can be beautiful. All, all shapes, all sizes, all, all hair, skin color uh, can be beautiful. And by getting that emotional connection with consumers, they immediately opened up um, uh, women of all ages to say, this is a brand that I want to do business with. So the second rule is to connect emotionally and, and to learn how to do that. And then the third um, rule for marketing to uh, open mind is ensuring that you are trying, you are delivering your messages at the moment, the time, 
when uh, consumers are ready uh, to listen to them. And that's where you need those implicit research tools to tell you when those times are and how you can best connect with them. It's interesting because a lot of the times businesses and products or services are talking to con- talking at consumers but not engaging them and they're not conscious or thinking about strategically what the best time is, what their mindset is at that time that they're receiving that message. And one example that I always find amusing, and I, I can't believe I still see it, is outdoor signage, particularly on a freeway. And it's got more than three or four words on it. It's got sentences. And there's no way I can read, finish reading that by the time I've zoomed past at 100 kilometres an hour, you know. <laughs> and I still yeah. find that extraordinary that that, that can still happen. And it's, it's because, you know, we're so logical in the business world, aren't we? We're all, yes. you know, we're very rational people. We've all sort of built our careers by using data. So when it comes to developing advertising, there'll be lots of people saying, well, we need to say this, and we need to say that, and we need to make that point, and we need to explain this as an advantage. And it's all logical, and it all makes sense. But it misses the point that we don't do business with people that, you know, that give us all the logic. We do business with people that we like. Mm. And, you know, the brands that have got nice, simple, emotional, emotive uh, ideas behind them, probably the, the wonderful, uh, you know, Nike, just do it, you know, which, which was just that simple phrase, immediately sort of uplifted it to, yeah, I can do that, and, you know, didn't need to say any more than that, and just do it, and here's the product. Um, those sorts of emotional connections, they are the key, and far too many companies sort of downplay the importance of the emotional side and overemphasize the desire to try to rationalize consumers into, uh, into buying from them. And I think that is a good example of how brand strategy has changed particularly, I think, over the last 10 years. I'd be interested in in your view on that. But in my view, you know, I think it's changed over the last, say, 10 years. Uh, Those that are tapping into the emotional drivers and motivations of, of consumers are the ones that are winning. But I'm also finding that the brand is extending beyond the marketing department. It's now part of the business strategy and it's intrinsically linked to reputation. And that's where a lot of businesses are understanding that as well. What's your view on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I think these days, and um, you know, the brand is the whole. It is the whole corporation. It's the whole business, and that is very important. That you know, whatever your proposition is, the whole business understands that and lives it. I think one of the problems that a lot of businesses have got these days, uh, paradoxically, is big data. You know, everybody talks about big data. The much data around and our techniques for analyzing it are so incredibly good and I think the whole business world has got somewhat seduced by this sort of cycle of analyzing analyzing and crunching data down and trying to get to this you know this this is the killer fact that if we deliver it to these consumers at this point you know big data says that, that, that they'll they'll be persuaded and that search has, has driven people away from some of the truth that actually we do business with our emotions really with our, with our brain. So the emotional connection is the secret to the really, really successful brand. I think that's, uh, that value uh, and that emotional link is, is the key. I know that uh, I noticed when you were doing some work with Watson's, the chemist in Asia, you worked on their customer value propositions. Yeah. 
And that's an area as well that businesses that actually understand what a customer value proposition is can use it. So just tell us a little bit about what you think a customer value proposition is. Yeah, well, again, it comes it comes back to to the brain and how the brain works. So whenever we whenever we buy something, what we're doing effectively is we're we're exchanging something that is very valuable to us, money. And so, in return for that, we have to feel that we're getting something back that's even more valuable. And so, understanding you know the the balance between the emotional importance of whatever, of whatever your product is is enabling customers to to get and then understanding depending upon the importance of that how much you can charge for it that's a very subtle trade-off that uh, that, that that companies need to need to manage and when i worked on on what across asia we did a lot of work which which helped us to understand a very big part of our proposition to, to customers where they had to feel they could trust us to deliver value on the core basic products and the business had lost sight of that a bit, and it wasn't until we re-established that trust on the, on the core items that we were able to then trade them up some of the more expensive cosmetic beauty products. You know, and I think that's probably quite a common experience that many retailers, especially, will have. Andy, uh, just as we come to the end, sadly, um, I do like to always finish off with a pearl of wisdom from our guests and what that is, a basic philosophy um, or a, a quote or some sort of insight or wisdom or advice that you live by or someone gave you once or you tend to give give someone asking you for, for advice, uh, just, I suppose, how to live in a business world. What would your pearl of wisdom be? Well, mine would be, you, you've thrown this one at me, Jackie, but I can think of one, actually, which is, um, and it, it sort of is relevant to our conversation. When I started my career many years ago at Procter & Gamble, which is one of the most data-driven companies and logical companies in the world, I was really struck by a conversation I had with a senior manager, and I was a real junior guy, and this was a very impressive guy, and we were talking some issue, and uh, there, was a, there was a debate on the... On the, on the numbers, and he said to me, Andy, if you ever get a conflict between uh, the numbers and your gut, trust your gut. And to hear that from such a uh, senior guy in such a data-driven company was very powerful and sort of comes back to the subject that we've been talking about somewhat, is that what he was saying in a way was the emotions that you sort of feel are actually much more important and all the rational stuff sometimes and never forget that. That's wonderful. Well, I was actually using an implicit technique there, Andy, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to give you that That's question. Very- very crafty. <laughs> well, well, obviously, I really wanted to tap in that subconscious, but it's amazing. Every guest I speak to always has one story like that, and I think that uh, as we're getting older and, and younger people are coming up, that we shouldn't forget the impact it had on us, that we should then um, communicate and uh, divulge our secrets. And you've certainly divulged your secrets in your new book uh, about the new growth paradigm, Finding Your Growth Sweet Spot. And uh, and the new book is available where? It's available from January 2017. Available from January, yeah. I mean, it'll be available uh, uh, online, Amazon and, 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 and other online retailers. And it will be available in, uh, in Australian uh, retailers as well from from uh, January onwards. So, yeah, please do look out for it. It's called
called The Growth Director's Secret, if I'm allowed to plug. Of course, and, yes, uh, The Growth I, Director's Secret. Yes, I hope uh, I hope your, your listeners will enjoy it. I know that they will. Everyone will be looking for finding their growth sweet spot. Really, really important. Andy, as always, it's always great catching up with you. I, I love our conversations, and I know the book will be a bestseller. And, uh, and it's a topic not talked about enough, and I think it's sorely needed. And also like to thank you for staying up so late. <laughs> not a source of pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Jackie, and, and thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. From London, Andy Brent, I look forward to our next encounter. We hope you've learned something new today and feel a little bit smarter. You'll find more information about today's show on our Facebook page, taking care of business and in the meantime we look forward to your company next friday at 11am keep taking care of your business